Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa. On our seventh episode of School of Coin today, Eddie and I are going to be covering inflation. So inflation is a word that many are probably hearing more and more right now. Uh, and our aim with this episode is to bring some truth to the conversation and sort of share our perspectives about a term that I actually don't think people truly understand. Um, and when you actually start to really understand it, it can be really disturbing uh, when you kind of realize what's happening. So our hope is just to kind of like clarify what inflation means and make it more tangible for people because it's kind of this thing, this uh, ephemeral thing that gets talked about, but like bringing it down into concrete reality terms, I think is important. Uh, current Moscow time is 1556 at 709698. And as a reminder, the Bitcoin store is a community-funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code on our homepage at bitcoinstore.com. Or you can stream sats using something like the Breeze app, which has a really badass podcast feature. Uh, and really one of the best ways of supporting the project is simply by sharing it with others uh, who you might think are curious to learn about Bitcoin or who uh, require like a little bit of deeper understanding about specific topics. So with that said, let's dive into inflation. And sort of today's objective is to introduce the concept of inflation and keep things fairly basic. Um, we're going to be having Jeff Booth stopping by the STOA in December, which I'm very excited for. Uh, and we'll do a deep dive into inflation at that point. Jeff is the author of a book called The Price of Tomorrow. And that'll be probably a more advanced and more nuanced conversation about the topic from the master himself. But why don't we start today with a fundamental question? What is inflation? Eddie, you want to have a crack at that? And then we can kind of riff on it a bit. What is yeah. inflation? If someone asks you that, what do you yeah, say? Yeah, good morning, Nick. Um, glad to be here today. And I'm excited to talk about this topic. I think what I, because I was looking up a lot of definitions for inflation and I decided to just go with my own, my, my two definitions. And one of them was a prior definition or maybe just like a, a framework that I had in my mind. And then it was a, a new definition. But my old understanding of inflation was very, very little. Um, you know, obviously have no background in finance or economics, but it was the simple like prices go up over time. It's natural. That's the way it is. And, and it's good too. remember that, that it's good. I don't know why. Um, it's good because maybe if you own something, oh, if I own a house, prices go up. That's a good thing if you own something. Uh, you know, I, I didn't. So I'm trying to figure out what that means to me. Um, but it, to me, it was like even things like food. That was like my basic understanding of inflation. Like uh, I used to think about like a price of a hamburger. It was like, I think in the 70s, I wasn't around, but I know pictures. They're like 25 cents and a hamburger is $5 now. And uh, houses were this price back then. They're this price now. So that's my understanding, my basic understanding of, of inflation, really. Yeah. And I think even, you know, I tried to go in and look and like, what does it mean to inflate? Like, what does inflate mean? It means to increase something. So, okay. To inflate means to increase. Um, and, you know, the online dictionary had a definition that said a general increase for def for inflation. It was a general increase in prices and a fall of the purchasing power of money, which I found really curious um, because the increase in price doesn't necessarily mean something's getting more valuable. If it also happens with the decrease in purchasing power of money it really just means our money's becoming less valuable. And I really like this. This one has a little bit more nuance to it. It was by Michael Saylor. I heard him say it on a podcast. Inflation is the rate of price appreciation in a basket of goods, services, or assets that you wish to acquire in future. And that's my favorite one because it carries a lot more balance to it. Um, and yeah, inflation's 
inflation is a mind fuck because it is this magic trick by central banks that has essentially like fooled all of us, right? Like this whole notion that magic exists because humans are easy to fool. And I think inflation is a magic trick um, that we've all been kind of hypnotized with the fact that we need inflation and a small amount is both good for us and good for the economy. That's the spell that we're under. <laughs> um, unless you really make an ad added effort to really understand it. And, you know, when I, when I think of inflation, I think of this Mark Twain quote, which is that it's easier to fool people than it is to convince them that they've been fooled. And this one really holds true because the discomfort you get by starting to understand inflation and what that means from your personal perspective, if you're not like an uber wealthy person, um, makes it so that it's very uncomfortable to accept that as truth. Because by doing that, you're accepting you've lived your life according to a line. You've had your time stolen from you every day of your life for your entire existence. That's fucking uncomfortable and like very angering if you actually lean into um, sort of verifying that that's the truth. And, you know, my, my reality with inflation is that it comes from money creation. When we inflate the money, we inflate the prices of everything that that money pays for. And we decrease the value of each unit of that money. And it essentially is time theft on a massive scale. And we'll kind of unpack how, how inflation is time theft, how money creation is time theft. Um, but what I want to give like a, a high level zoomed out sort of view of something I was thinking of this morning. So let's just start here and then we can build a discussion around it. So money is created. Okay. We'll talk about why that's how it's created is really messed up. Money's created. Wealthy people get preferential access to that money. So it's created by a central bank. There's like a spigot and wealthy people are first to get access to that spigot of money. They take that money and they nest it in assets. This increases the price of those assets, which makes the wealthy people richer, but makes assets harder to acquire by everyday people who don't have huge amounts of wealth. The assets become too, too expensive to afford by the non-wealthy. Uh, and all prices increase because there are now more units of money fighting for the same goods. And the added effect is that when you manipulate money, you manipulate and decrease our ability to coordinate because we're all, we all have to readjust, right? We have to redo our pricing mechanisms of how we evaluate value to things because there's more money in the system. It's like a huge frame shift. And the harder it is for us to coordinate, the harder it is for us to actually get the, the same supply of goods available to people in the public. And so essentially there's more money fighting for fewer goods and everything just becomes more expensive, obviously at different rates. Um, but you know, the result there is that everyday people fall further behind because things are more expensive, but they're not getting paid more. So they have to work more and more to keep up and the rich people get richer because all the assets they were able to buy first become more expensive and harder to reach from everyone else. And so to me, money creation by central banks results in that kind of process all the way down to the bottom of really just making it harder for the everyday person to make their ends meet and increasing the disparity of the wealthiest people to the poorest people. What are your thoughts on that? Cause that's a, that's a mouthful, but that was kind of the way I was framing this to be like, how does this whole thing actually work from a zoomed out lens? And when you look at it like that, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. Uh, Nick, dude, that's a total, you really just like kind of struck a nerve, um, with me. Uh, there and very well articulated as far as that closed loop that kind of has been created um, by the uber elite but like really like my thought my thoughts on it are are yeah man like 
it is really hard to understand the complex systems and they're complex systems for a reason, uh, I believe. And uh, in order to, in order to dive into that understanding and accept that reality, we need to be constant learners. We need to be constantly diving into that material. And then also, like I said, that, you know, you're, you're, what you're saying to me is, is striking a nerve. It's making me like cringe up a little bit and that, that will uh, stop my learning and it'll stop my, my growing process. So like you said, like it's super important to dive into these things, although it may not be the most uh, desirable and happy thing to learn about. But the really great thing to know is that once you once you do get to a certain level of understanding, you will be able to start to make better decisions for yourself and for the people that um, you care about. And so I think that that's something um, that is uh, important as far as the learning process, but really well articulated, um, Nick. And I think it just, uh, you know, uh, two different things that I um, don't know too much uh, into, but, uh, you know, like the Cantillian effect. Um, which is what you're uh, explaining. And so you want to um, explain what that means within that kind of framework? Yeah, I would love to try to. Um, and I think like the Cantillon effect is essentially that, um, you know, the, the wealthy, um, like you said, who have the assets available um, essentially have first choice to, um, you know, invest their money and essentially have the ability to, um, you know, make their own decisions, you know, so, people that um, have less money, uh, you know, have less ability to make their own uh, autonomy. And I think, you know, one of the things that that really strikes me with inflation is um, the more that I learn about inflation, I, it's like uh, very wealthy people are very um, passionate about inflation, because if you have $100 million, and, in, you know, the United States, the Fed is printing money and you're losing, you know, 20%, so $20 million a year, or what have you, that's a lot of money. And that's a big deal. Cash. If you're holding cash, exactly. Um, but the, the point that I'm uh, coming to is, and, and, and I think it's a hard realization for everybody, is that the people that are, are most affected are the people that, are, that have a small amount of wealth and that have to make those those daily decisions, you know, those those daily um, purchase decisions, and and um, you know, people like that uh, are the ones who are are uh, ultimately affected. You know, like you said, it, it kind of steers clear of the of the ultra elite. Yeah, and I think the easiest way to understand the Cantillon effect is that the people who get first access to the money that's created by central banks have a disproportionate advantage to be able to grab that money that is basically free and nested in an asset, which goes up in price before the rest of us have a, t have a chance to sort of get access to those assets. So essentially they get to take full first mover advantage on that money where they put it makes those things more expensive for all of us, which is now harder to afford. We don't get access to the free money and all we have, the net result is that things are more expensive and harder for the everyday person to afford. And it's this, it's truly like, it's such an unfair system, right? And I, and you know, I've, I've been working through this sort of concept of inflation being a magic trick um, because I, I want to be fully honest here. Like I was tricked by the magic trick for the majority of my life. I did not know how inflation worked or what it did. I always felt it was kind of weird. I'm like, why is shit getting so much more expensive? I'm not making more money. Things are getting more expensive. It seems like I'm on this treadmill that's getting faster and faster. 
and I have no ability to run faster. So I'm just doing more work for less money and affording less things. And this is super weird. Like, I don't know if it should be like this. I had this feeling, but I always thought it's just normalized, right? Things get more expensive. That's the cost we pay for a society going through growth, which is a good thing we're told. And, you know, I've kind of like, there's some people that I've seen do magic tricks and they fool me. And then they explain, some people will explain their magic tricks and be like, these are the tools of deception I'm using to trick you into believing this magic trick. And once you understand those tools and you understand the tools they're using to deceive you, you're no longer deceived, right? Like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Now the magic trick doesn't look like magic. It looks like the perfect execution of these little tools that they use. And for me, the magic trick of inflation Re, uh, relies on a couple of very specific elements, which are the tools they use to deceive us. The first one is that it rewards people, those with power. It rewards wealthy people. And those people carry a disproportionate amount of power to make sure that the people doing the money creation stay in power because it's benefiting the rich people. So trick number one, benefit rich people. Trick number two, use a dishonest metric to disallow people from realizing what's happening. That's called CPI. And we're going to talk about how dishonest and, and uh, how fucked up it is that they continue to tell us this metric, which carries no meaning in reality. So number one, reward those that are rich, that, that money creation benefits. Number two, use a dishonest metric uh, for the rest of us to try and fool us and that nothing bad is happening. And number, number three is continue perpetuating financial literacy so that no one ever finds out what you're doing. And that's a really sketchy one. And that's something where it's like, we don't learn about inflation in school. We don't learn about money in school. Um, we have no ability, no awareness or tools to be able to understand this. Therefore, we cannot, there's no reason for us to stop it because we don't even know what's happening. And so I really think, you know, it's just weird. And, and this whole, you know, the final tool is to frame money creation as needed for our collective benefit. And when you have that amount of power, it creates weird incentives where like now you're actually incentivized to create scenarios that justify money creation, like a pandemic, like, like an, a, a natural, like just big disasters, like a, uh, an economic, an economic catastrophe that requires us to print more money. Right. And so it creates this weird perverse incentive that self-perpetuates this um, money creation that benefits few and creates pain for many. Um, and they, they're just, they're, they just continue to be able to put this magic spell over us. And hopefully this episode will help to number one, show people that the CPI is a bullshit, dishonest metric. And number two, improve financial literacy so that people can actually find out what's going on. And, and like you said, shield themselves. Cause now we actually have a shield that's available to everyone. It's called Bitcoin. We'll talk about that. Um, but you know, like why should the average person? So if you talk to your uncle about inflation, and they just kind of like, don't care about it. You know, wh why should people care about inflation? Um, how do we get people interested about this, right? Because it is uncomfortable to realize and to learn about it. So how do we get people, how do we make it tangible for people so that they actually see what's going on and become interested? I've done my own experiments with friends and family. So I'll share kind of my perspective, but uh, what's your take on how to get people interested that inflation is actually real, it's affecting them and to try and get them interested to protecting themselves? Yeah, man. Um, I would say that that's like a really hard thing to do. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say that I have used inflation. I would love to, I think that I'm super passionate about it, but I haven't used that as a like big important selling point, you know, besides, you know, besides the fact of like 
money printing and, 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 and the, the, you know, all the things that did happen with the pandemic in 2020, 2021. Um, I think that it's like a tough thing to get across to somebody is like, Hey, you know, this is a, this is this abstract idea and this is why it's really important. Um, here's a really good idea why it should, should matter to you. I did find a, a, a little snippet of, of why, why I do care and why I think I'm happy to tell other people that it's really important to them. And I, and I think it's the fact that inflation is, and I do believe this, that inflation is the prime driver of all economic inequality in the world. As those privileged few who receive newly printed money, just like you're saying, the earliest benefit uh, disproportionately. And uh, I think that, you know, coming across to my uncle, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have wealthy uncles, I have uncles that are, you know, um, just regular, you know, Uncle Joe. And uh, I think that it really just depends on who you're talking to. But really, like, I think appealing to the broader sense of like, humanness and like the fact that there are inequalities in this world. Um, and that, you know, I mean, that's like, that's something that everyone can see. So um, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on how you've been experimenting and telling, you know, people why they should care about inflation, because, you know, it's, a, it's something that, that really strikes me. And, and it's a challenging thing to, to come across to um, different uh, generations and different types of people, you know, with their, with their background, I would say. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, every, like your wealthy uncle might actually like it, even if he understands it, he might like it. Right. Um, That's, yeah, right. <laughs> because it's, it's benefiting him. And then uncle Joe, you know, is on this treadmill of working harder and harder for less and less. He might not have the bandwidth to even care to learn about it. He's like, dude, I don't, I just finished the day of work. I'm working way more than I used to. I'm struggling to pay my bills. Um, I don't have time to learn about inflation, you know, and it's just, and that, that oftentimes is the wall that comes up is like, people don't have the bandwidth to, to just have all this extra time to learn about something very important because their time is getting squeezed from them constantly. And we'll talk about how money creation is really stealing time. And I would love to just try and articulate that in a simple way so people can understand it. But the reason, like one way that I've been having conversations with friends and family to make them care about inflation to make them care about the rate of money creation is the example I give is okay if uh, my brother Pat has a bank account and I found out that someone every month is stealing money from his bank account but he doesn't know they're not telling him right so someone's going in there and stealing money and he doesn't really notice it because it's pretty subtle from day to day it's very subtle but over long periods of time it's drastic I want to make sure my brother Pat knows someone's stealing from him and even if it's inconvenient for him to learn about it, even if he just kind of expresses disinterest because he's got too much other stuff going on, I will make sure to constantly remind him you're being stolen from. If you want to understand how, let me know. And I'll try and explain it to you. No one likes to be stolen from. My parents got robbed 18.5% of their wealth from Jan 20 to Jan 21 because Canadian government created 18.5% more money. That's really unfair because they're, no, they're in a situation they're affected the most by this, right? Because they're not in their income earning years. They've earned income, which then they have kind of saved up so that that amount of wealth can sustain them for the rest of their life without them having to work, right? This whole thing known as retirement. Um, so if you have X amount of dollars and you don't realize 20% 
of your dollars just got robbed from you. Well, that has to change your whole process of figuring out how the fuck am I going to make this money work for the rest of my life? Cause I just got 20% lopped off, which I'm not even realizing because the money is still there, but each of those dollars is worth 20% less. It's really uncomfortable for people to realize that. And so the way I've been sort of getting my foot in the door saying like, we're all being stolen from right now. If you want to learn about it and how to protect yourself from that happening in future, because it's very important for you as my mom or for you as my brother, so that you don't just keep working more and more um, and find it harder to make ends meet, then let's talk about it. And, you know, I think the reality is, is that the way I frame money creation is, okay, I have to work to make a dollar. If I want to earn a hundred dollars, I need to work for it. I need to give my time and energy to someone who values something I can offer and they'll pay me a hundred dollars for that. Most people have to work to earn their money, but there's a select few people who can create virtually unlimited amounts of money without doing any work. That's really unfair. People know, like you can tell that to a 10 year old and they're like, that's not fair. That's a, that seems like a broken set of rules. Where's the referee? Like who the fuck is doing this? And I think that when I'm earning a hundred dollars, I'm giving my time and energy to earn that. So that money essentially is a representation of my time, right? It's a title to the time I gave to earn it. And the reason I wanted that is because that money, that tool can acquire me something in future, right? Maybe I pay someone else for a service or for a good in future. So if that money is essentially a way to account for my time, if someone creates massive amounts of money and that money I have is now worth less, they essentially stole my time, right? They stole my time. And let's be real. The only scarce resource that any of us have, the only thing that matters is time. Nothing else matters, right? Like money is an abstraction of time. Um, it's tokenized energy, which our energy is time. And, you know, the one little caveat I would put in there, both of us from health backgrounds will understand this, is that time is only valuable if you have health. So you can have as much money as you want, but if you're unhealthy, time is actually no longer valuable. It's actually, it's like negative value, right? Pain over periods of time is not good. Health over periods of time makes time actually valuable. So some people are allowed to steal others' time. And the crazy thing is that a tiny, tiny group of people steal time from everyone else, right? 1% of the Canadian population, less than that, maybe 0.1%, the people who are in charge of running central banks, steals from 99.99% of Canadians, steals their fucking time. That's really, really uncomfortable to say, but that is the reality that I'm witnessing. If you actually understand the mechanics of this, that's the actual reality. They're stealing the most the most scarce resource any human ever has. And we've essentially been tricked with this magic trick to think that it's acceptable and actually good. Like talk about fucked up. This is like the ultimate craziness. And, and I think for me, I started to view it actually inflation, not in economic terms, but in criminal terms, right? In terms of like a heist in terms of a theft that's been allowed to continue. And that's a complete game changer where it's like, makes you really angry, but it also just anchoring down on the fact that once you know it, you can protect yourself. Now that we have a choice for a sound asset that is sovereign from central banks, we now have the chance to protect ourselves. And Bitcoin, you know, just to put one last little bit is like, Bitcoin requires proof of work, right? In order for you to earn Bitcoin, you must give value. If you're a miner, you have to expend massive amounts of energy that you paid for and lots of computing power in order to earn that Bitcoin. If, you, if I want to earn Bitcoin from you, we have to engage in a consensual transaction whereby you're willing to pay me a certain amount of Bitcoin for the value I gave you. Right? No one can create Bitcoin out of nowhere. 
And this is a very important element in why Bitcoin is better money than fiat or central bank created money. So what's your thought on money being time? Yeah, Nick, I uh, really like that one point that you said there. And I think it's really pertinent to me in my life. I remember the person and when they said it to me, because it was the first time I heard it, but it was actually at the Bitcoin conference this year, go figure. But the person was like, the only, the only thing that you can truly give yourself or gift yourself. And I was like, okay, what are they going to say is time. The only thing that you can truly give yourself is time. And I think I'm still learning that. I'm really excited to talk about uh, the aspect of, of that time squeeze that we feel because uh, you know, like you said, uh, money is a, an, an abstraction of time. And I think that to, to tie those two things together is a very deep uh, thought process to go through. And then when you realize that inflation is time theft and, and essentially you know, your money is being taken from you and your money is your time, um, then, you know, you don't want to hold your money in a, or you don't want to hold your time in a money, in a currency that is being inflated or that's being debased. Um, and so like, I get, I get all excited about that, you know, and I think, um, that it does give me a lot of conviction, like you said, to, to be the person who's always there and always willing to talk about it because, um, uh, you know, like uncle Joe and the, and the rich uncle, um, you know, everybody's being affected. And uh, some people could be, you know, purposefully kind of going along with the things because they, they do receive benefits from it. But the cool thing is, is that the, the most powerful people out there are the Uncle Joes and everybody else yeah. um, who have the ability to vote for the money they want to choose. And yeah, so I think those are, those are kind of my thoughts on, on the time thing. I think it's a really, really um, beneficial, uh, concept to, to understand yourself. It is for me and it does get me fired up, um, as far as wanting to, wanting to understand inflation more and wanting to understand, like, you know, how can I better affect, uh, me, better help me and, and the people that I care about, you know, in the future moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're not going to stop money creation from benefiting wealthy people. I think your wealthy uncle you know, it's easy to go along with something if you're getting a lot of benefit from it. Um, and if you're benefiting from something, it's not a perceived problem. There's no incentive to actually understand the problem. Cause I bet you your wealthy uncle still has moral standards and still has like a, uh, an understanding of like integrity, right? If I'm benefiting disproportionately from something that's literally robbing everyone else, if there's this criminal, they're stealing from everyone and giving me a bunch of the proceeds to shut me up and make sure that I don't stop the process and that I continue making sure that criminal can do that. Then once I realize that's what's going on, it makes me probably more likely to be an activist for the fact that this is not right. This is not fair. Right. And you have to be pretty messed up to continue doing something that benefits you disproportionately while punishing everyone else. Um, and I don't, I think the majority of people like I said, there's no incentive to learn about it and stop it if you're benefiting from it. But I think when people, once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. And then it weighs on you. It's like, I'm doing something. And, and we are all, I think at the end of the day, you can't expect wealthy people to give up the ability to constantly make disproportionate amounts of wealth. You can't rely on that. So how do we stop the magic trick? How do we stop the spell from hypnotizing everyone uh, to our collective detriment? And I think we expose the tools that they use for their tricks, right? Just like you give a tutorial on how the magician does their tricks so that people can't be tricked by it. It's like, 
we, we aren't going to stop wealthy people from benefiting. So we can't really do much there. We can talk about why CPI is total bullshit and help people understand that that's a false metric and it's dishonest. Um, and we can help people understand that there is now a way to shield yourself from this um, by voting, by literally switching your shit money that's stealing from you for sound money that allows you to protect your wealth. And the cool thing is, is like, once you start to make that switch, the good money becomes more valuable as a direct correlation of how quickly the shit money becomes less valuable. So once you own Bitcoin, when you see the government creating massive amounts of money, it goes from being something that's stealing from you to something that's actually good for you because it means more and more people are going to be migrating to the better money. And it also means there's more, you know, fiat money available to pay for the sound money, to buy, to acquire the sound money. And so I think, you know, the transition starts small where people are just putting a small amount of their wealth into Bitcoin. But as they start, you know, that built into that acquisition of Bitcoin is the acceptance of taking more responsibility, understanding how this thing works how the world works, how money creation works. And, you know, as you learn more and more, you build more conviction and then you transfer more of your wealth, right? And I think it's, it's funny because people's perception of Bitcoin is risky if they don't understand it, right? If you don't understand Bitcoin, it seems risky. Oftentimes we conflate it with crypto and crypto is risky. So it's like, oh, it's risky. Then when you start to understand it, it becomes less and less risky, right? And it becomes more and more safe. And at a certain point, when you get deep enough in your understanding, every fiat dollar you hold is risky because it's guaranteed to be stolen from you over time. And so your risk perception goes from Bitcoin is risky to everything else except Bitcoin is risky. And I think the, the amount of your wealth that you transition to Bitcoin uh, kind of goes along for that ride and increases as time goes on. But I think, I think Bitcoin is the ultimate tool to protect us from uh, inflation. And then let's talk about, um, you know, and I, I there's always going to be inequality. There's always going to be people with more than others, but people getting more at the expense of it being stolen from others is the messed up part, right? There's nothing wrong with someone having a billion dollars. That's fine. Maybe they worked a lot harder. Maybe they got lucky, whatever the case may be. But if that person is getting billions of dollars because everyone else, because every single other person is getting a dollar, a billion people are getting a dollar stolen from them. That's not fair. And we need to talk about that. So it's not, you know, it should be fair. If you fairly earn more money than me, that's totally cool. Good for you. Uh, if you unfairly steal my money to acquire more money, that's not fair. We need to talk about that. Um, and the cool thing is big, buying Bitcoin is the peaceful way to opt out of the system that's stealing from you. Yeah, man, that was really well said. And I think, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin really is the perfect shield from inflation. Um, one little snippet of a really uh, one of my favorite papers from Robert Robert Breedlove called Money, Time and Bitcoin. I'd like to just read it real quick because it kind of uh, encapsulates the entire talk we're having Perfect. It's uh, for today. It's really until the invention of Bitcoin, all forms of money were subject to having their value stolen by producers of the monetary good. This made all monetary technologies before Bitcoin imperfect in their ability to store value across time or essentially hold on to time. And so you can think like, I, I think of like uh, this, like Michael Saylor analogy of like Bitcoin and other currencies as like a container. And Bitcoin is like this perfect container. It's going to perfectly seal your value or your time or your value across time. But then you have something like the USD, which is slowly it's got a little hole in the bottom of the container and it's slowly leaking out 
And, and so it's getting bigger over time. That's the, that's crazy, the thing. crazy thing. And so it's like, you know, Bitcoin, it's, it's finite supply is what makes it the best medium to store value, you know, for, for human time. And that's, that's the big difference uh, and why it really makes it, uh, you know, the perfect shield from inflation is that it's, it, it can't be inflated. Yeah. And I heard someone say that the ability to create money arbitrarily out of nowhere without consequence is too much power for any human to ever have. It just is. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa, you're going to do some sketchy shit because the incentive is such that it's good to do sketchy shit. That's what, that's the way that works. And the cool thing about Bitcoin is it took the human element out, right? It created a set of rules that no one can mess with, that we all agree are fair, and that we must continue to agree are fair in order for them to continue. If we want to change rules, we all have to agree that's a fair set of rules to change too, which means Bitcoin is very hard to change. And by taking out the human element, we've removed the temptation of arbitrary money creation, right? We've algorithmically programmed a fair set of rules that can never be broken by any single individual. That is where the power of Bitcoin comes from. It's not because some subset of people are like noble and kind people. No, it's because there are no people deciding how much gets made. We all agree that the set of rules is fair by buying Bitcoin. And we know that there's no, it, we know we've removed the human fault from it, which is why it's so dependable as a store of value. And uh, yeah, that's a really good excerpt from Robert Breedlove's uh, work. I think he, the sailor he did, the series he did with Michael Saylor is like, dude, that's a masterclass in life and money and philosophy. And it's like, I could listen to that 10 times over and get new things each time. So yeah, um, let's talk about CPI. Because right now we are November 14th and, you know, the, in the past couple of weeks, they've come out with numbers saying, oh my God, inflation is the highest in 40 years. And it's like, they quote CPI, consumer price index. So I really want to talk about how consumer price index is one of the people doing the magic tricks, best tools to continue to propagate the magic trick, because they make some number up that they think people will accept and not get alarmed over. And they give us this false sense of security that inflation is non-existent. And if it is, it's, it's small, right? And so even six, people freaked out over like what, 6%? And even that is total bullshit. It's probably like a third of what is actually happening. And I think it's important to unpack like, what is CPI? How do they come to that number? What does CPI represent? And why is that a grossly deceiving metric to use? Um, thinking that people will just look at that in the newspaper and accept that that's true. So let's break that down. I'd love to hear from you. Like, do you think CPI is a good metric? If not, why? What is the flaw in it? And how do you currently understand how CPI is measured and how much it applies to you? And like, you might not know all those answers, yeah. but um, then I just want to unpack, like, where is the deception happening? Um, yeah. All right, couple couple points. So I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go backwards. Like, what does it mean to me? It mean it meant absolutely nothing to me um, a few days ago, and I think that I think that uh, you know whether this is like one of the like fake reveals of the magic trick where it's like oh CPI, you know CPI. This is this we we worked really hard to put together this figure of numbers, and so you know I dug into it a little bit, um, and. I think it's very interesting. And, and Nick, I want to hear your thoughts on this because I really think that it's, it's odd that 
Um, and, you know, like the more that I learn about like macroeconomics and things like that, I start to hear the word basket. And so I, I'm understanding like that term when, when it comes to CPI, but yeah, like a seems, basket of goods. Exactly. And, and like uh, averaging them. So essentially, you know, CPI, what that means to me, it means that as a consumer uh, in America or, you know, in any country um, that has a CPI index, there are certain things that I like to purchase on a like habitual or repetitive thing. So uh, rent, food, uh, gas, things like that, that I regularly purchase, uh, maybe a cell phone, you know, like that I regularly purchase like every three years. Um, so that's my kind of understanding of it. And then, and then what they do is they measure the change in price of those items over time. And then, and, and they say that that's the best way to, uh, measure this magical thing that we're talking about today, inflation. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, man. Cause it's like, it's something to me that's very, um, complex, maybe purposefully complex, but it doesn't seem like it can really justfully, um, account for like me as a consumer, as an yeah. individual. So I think the spirit of consumer price index, I think we can say that there's a, there's a, there's a spirit there that I think is, is acceptable, which is that for each person, there's a basket of goods. Like you said, there's a, there's a, a basket of things that they commonly need to purchase and the aggregate differential of the, the price of that basket over time increasing represents uh, sort of an approximation to how much more expensive things are getting. Okay. I think that's a, the spirit of that is fair. Now in a complex world where people have vastly different uh, things they want to purchase, uh, you abstract away and simplify things so much. Like basically what they're saying is, okay, CPI is 6%. So we chose a basket of random shit that was chosen so that we got that number. And we're telling you that that is the kind of shit you want to buy and are buying. Therefore, this metric applies to your inflation rate. So clearly, the 30-year-old living in his parents' basement that doesn't pay utilities, has no intention to buy a house, um, gets meals cooked by his mom, only pays for Netflix, beer, and his cell phone bill. His inflation metric, his CPI is based on the increase in uh, price of Netflix, beer, and a cell phone bill. That's it, right? And those things probably aren't going up in price a huge amount. If you want to buy a house, if you pay for energy, if you pay for food, if you pay for gas, if you pay for a car, you have a vastly different basket of goods that you uh, want to acquire. Vastly different basket of goods and services, right? Do you have kids? Well, you're going to pay for education at some point. So maybe education, maybe healthcare is now a thing that you need to pay for. And so the crazy thing is like, literally, Eddie, you could tell me, give me a number that you want inflation to be. doesn't matter what that number is. You want 1% inflation? Perfect. I'll put together a basket of goods. I'll choose, a I'll cherry pick a basket of goods that shows you there's 1% inflation. You want, you want to choose 15%, 100%, I'll choose different baskets and I'll get you that number. So the reliance on the fact that people don't actually understand what the fuck CPI is and how they get to that is what they're relying on to continue the magic trick. Because number one, you can't just simplify things to, to something that's like, here's a basket that everyone wants. This is what it is. Number one, you can manipulate the shit out of what's in that basket to get a certain number. Number two, that basket doesn't apply to everyone evenly. So I think the big thing is that we have to take responsibility for discovering what is our basket of goods. 
Okay. Because if you, if you want, eventually want to buy a house, your number will be vastly different, especially if you weight that the cost of that asset and how much they've gone up into that basket, right? So to use simple, basic math and arbitrary choice of what should be in everyone's basket is the dumbest thing ever and removes any meaning from this, not to mention the fact that they can cherry pick what's there so they can basically choose one number and make it so that it's a number that's acceptable for people to handle while deceiving them to the fact that actual numbers are like two, three, four times as much depending on what your basket is, right? You wanna buy real estate in the Hamptons? Well, your real estate portion of your basket went up 35%, right? I live in Ottawa. The cost of a house from October 2020 to 2021 is went up 19%. Now, what's funny is that most CPI indexes don't include assets at all. So if you want to own a house, they're assuming you never want to own a house. Uh, they don't include cost of transportation. So they're assuming you don't want to move anywhere. They don't assume they don't include cost of energy or cost of food. So you clearly you don't have to eat or pay for energy to keep yourself warm. So what the hell are you left with? You're left with something with zero meaning. And that's simply used as something they could put in a newspaper or put on the news and make people feel like inflation isn't a thing. That's how messed up it is. Because it really, it really is shocking how no one really realizes this. Right? No one realizes this trick. This is the easiest trick to see through. Because clearly, if I want different things than you, that number doesn't apply to both of us. Probably doesn't apply to either of us. And I think by increasing financial literacy, by increasing awareness of what inflation is, how we should individually calculate it. And it's not simple math, right? You actually have to like deep, dive pretty deep into finding out these numbers. Um, it allows people to realize how much inflation their basket of goods is undergoing from year to year. And it's shocking. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that it's really true. I, I think that it just doesn't make sense to me why uh, using a an average, and then like you said, it you know could be like a very self-selected average, a very um, biased average of goods, goods that like I don't even use, goods that are sure. completely irrelevant. You know, yeah. I could be I could be a self you know I could be a hermit living in a in a cave growing my own. Uh, uh, food, you know, and so like any, any, none, none of that is relevant to me, you know, I, uh, food is relevant to me, you know, the things like that, like, I think, you know, um, like you said, taking into account your own basket of goods, and then, and then really, like, really, like, objectively taking a look at it and saying, like, oh, okay, like, wow, like, I didn't realize that, well, yeah, three years ago, I was paying this much for, uh, for, for water, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a silly thing, but that's like an example that I'll use is like, sure. with all the printing that was going on, um, in 2020, January 1st, 2021, the, the water store where I was, you know, would get my filtered water from, uh, increased his prices by 50% a gallon. And I'm like, you know, I was just like messing around with uh, the owner there. And I was like, Hey man, like what's, what's going on? Like inflation, you know? And he, you know, he, he was, got 50% better Eddie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And, and it's like, you know, things aren't getting cheaper. And, um, and, you know, obviously that guy had had business costs and, and things to take care of. And uh, that's just one little, one little small aspect. Um, but it really is like a, a very personal thing that you have to like come back and, and kind of reevaluate your own life for. And, and start to make the good decisions on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's super uncomfortable when you start to see it. Right. And, and there's so many inefficiencies there because 
this, this ability to coordinate at a mass scale is actually incredible. Like when you walk into a grocery store, the amount of coordination that was needed amongst millions of people to put all those products on the shelves is pretty amazing. I remember Parker Lewis had a story about how it takes over a million people to make a pencil, mm. a, a wooden pencil with, with lead in it. it takes a million people because if you go all the way back and you think about like, okay, you have to extract that lead from the ground. So you need machines to do that. You need people who build the parts for that machine. You need people who drive the machine. You need people who assemble the machine and maintain the machine. All those people are built into the, to what's the coordination that's needed to get a pencil to your grocery store. Not to mention like the ship it came over on, the people who built the ship, maintain the ship, drive the ship, fuel the ship, who extracted the fuel to go in the ship. And like, you literally see like, oh my God, even a pencil takes mass coordination if we include all of the elements needed to make that thing and who contributed to those elements. So to play with money, this this base foundational language of value is to play God, right? It's like messing with genetics. You might mess with a gene that you think does one thing, and then you mess up 50 other things that that gene can no longer do. And it's inconvenient to know that. So you just pretend like, oh no, we just did one gene and we got one benefit and that's it and ignore the rest. And I think with money, it's like, okay, if the cost of a house goes up 19% and um, the cost of everything is creeping up slowly. Well, does the person who owns a house that they're renting, can they increase the rent 19%? No, you're not no even way. legally allowed to do that. <laughs> and that's really hard to do on a tenant that's already struggling to pay their bills. So who absorbs that? Well, now as an asset owner, you're starting to get poorer because even though your asset went up, you can't bump up your rent to reflect the increased price of the asset. So there's something's going to get messed up there. Um, and so it's really just like, and all these things where, if your price of food goes up 10% and you didn't get a 10% raise, you're working harder for less. You're on the treadmill and someone keeps inching up the speed on the treadmill. And lately they crank the speed. So you're running way faster just to stay in the same spot. And, you know, I play in this football flag football game every Thanksgiving Monday, the long weekend of Thanksgiving, I play a flag football game with guys I went to high school with. And this is like an ongoing tradition. It's one of my favorite traditions it's nice. called the Turkey Bowl. <laughs> everyone gets fucked up physically because no one moves. And then we go super intense for like three hours on Thanksgiving. And we're all, we're, then we all text each other and we're like, do your hips hurt? Do your legs hurt? Do your... Anyway. Um, but one thing that came up was like, people felt the squeeze, right? People were saying, dude, I have no time these days. Like I have just enough time to spend with my family and to work, to earn enough to pay my bills. I got no extra time. Like, where does the time go? People were saying this and I'm like, Everyone feels the squeeze, the squeeze of doing more and more and more in order to earn less and less and less and seeing your spare time shrink more and more and more. And I really think that that squeeze is the source of our health problem. Because when you start to have less time available, you start to trim things that you deem non-essential, right? Probably you'll view working to pay your mortgage so you don't get kicked out of your house um, as more important than taking care of your mental health, as more important than spending more time cooking meals. And so health essentially gets thrown off the ship pretty early when the ship is starting to shrink in size. And I think a lot of things do. And I think it's no wonder that in an environment where we're having to, you know, work harder and harder for less and less health gets destroyed. And that's a really sad thing that I think I, you and I are both witnessing where people have less time to take care of themselves. They have less time to even understand how to take care of themselves because we're not taught health. Um, and yeah, so I think CPI, it just has to be, you shouldn't even 
don't take CPI with any grain of truth because it probably doesn't apply to you. It was probably manipulated to be that number because literally you can choose anything you want. And, and the crazy thing is like the basket of goods is shifting over time, right? The basket of goods they used to calculate inflation today is vastly different than the basket they used to of goods they used to, to calculate inflation like in the 80s. And so they're literally just redefining the market basket of goods so that prices don't increase in drastic amounts so they can continue deceiving people into thinking inflation isn't happening when in reality, not only is there inflation, there might be hyperinflation. 30% increase year over year in houses, that's hyperinflation, right? Or, or a hyper decrease in the purchasing power of your money. Um, so I have some like specific elements that I looked up of uh, things that are in my basket and the rates of increase year over year. And I, I, I don't know if you have some too, but let's just talk about those and then let's uh, kind of riff on the squeeze and kind of unpack that a little bit more. And then let's talk about um, a deflationary future because that's totally, this is a total new mental concept to go into, but I think it's important to see like what kind of society should we be living in? Um, and what is the potential for an amazing future with sound money? So some things in my basket, like I said, single family home from October 20 to 2021, up 19%. Uh, earlier this year, I bought raw materials for uh, TFC. We make balance beams, like literally things that you stand on to improve your balance and your mental focus. So we make them out of aluminum and we make them out of wood. The raw aluminum tubing costs, um, when I bought them probably a couple months ago, went up 28% since four months prior. So that's a raw commodity because we buy aluminum from the extruder. They go from these massive raw aluminum ingots and they extrude long pieces of tubing. Commodity, base material, 28% up. When I bought wooden dowels, they were 32% more expensive than when I had purchased them earlier in the year. So this isn't even year over year. This is like a quarter, a quarter or two quarters, 32% for wooden dowels. The S&P index, 30% year over year. Do we really think that companies on that index got 30% more valuable in one year? No, there's just a flood of money that needs to find a home. So it gets plopped there. Apple stock is up 25% year over year. Apple didn't get 25% more dominant or have 25% better products, right? Money just needed to nest somewhere. Their dividend didn't go up, right? But the stock went up 25%. Bitcoin's up 280%. That's probably largely contributed because more money. And you know the natural gas spot price year over year, in Canada, 115% increase. So if you know, like those are things that are relevant to my basket, a couple other stats from September, 2019 to 2% and a prime rib roast is up 32%. Those are things in my basket. Those don't reflect CPI. Um, what about you? Any, anything specific for you to kind of bring up? Yeah, that's nuts, man. And I like that. Uh, I like that you use just that year over year um, comparison. I did. I went a little bit different and used uh, the comparison of like uh, when I was 18. So 12 years ago and cool. today, and then just a couple of relevant things that I buy um, on a daily basis, you know, and one of those things is like ground beef is up 54% from 2009 to 2021. Uh, I remember when I bought my first used car and I, 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 you know, last in 2020, I bought a used car. Used cars are up 41% increase um, in, from, you know, 2009 to 2021. And I also think that that's kind of a, I mean, it just so happens to be the year I turned, um, you know, 19, but it was also, 
the year right after um, the 2008 recession. So I just think it's like an, uh, an interesting correlation. Um, but another, you know, another stat too, is just, you know, gas prices up 30%. Um, and then, you know, again, I guess those things kind of go up and down, but, you know, and, and that's going to kind of, that's, that's going to kind of move me toward more towards our conversation, um, about a deflationary future, because when you see things like wood going like skyrocketing up in price or like gas prices, which go up and down, like, um, you know, I'm doing a fairly large wood project. And if I decided to do it last year, I literally would have spent like 50% less money. Um, and you know, so this, this climbing wall that I'm building could have been, you know, 500 bucks, but, um, you know, it's still fun, but it, that those types of things don't really make a ton of sense to me when you see, like you said, such a drastic increase in price um, in such a short amount of time. But, uh, those are a couple of like my, like personal trends, obviously the water thing was a huge deal to me. Um, and you know, even things like little like services and, and things like uh, enjoyment, you know, like going to see a movie is up 30% since 2009. And I remember like when I was a little kid, I used to pay 50 cents for a Wednesday ticket movie, you know, but you go, uh, spend 12, $20. I don't know how much it is nowadays, but um, it's like last movie I went to was 25 bucks for a ticket. Like, what? <laughs> $25. It used yeah. to be like, I can remember that being at least half price that when I was younger. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, re- it's really crazy. And, uh, and it's funny too. Cause like uh, earlier today, like I was just on Twitter and I see, uh, I see this like really funny um, uh, relevant tweet that uh, is, is about our talk today. And it's like, I saw somebody post this picture of a menu uh, at a restaurant and i'm not sure if you've seen this up in up in canada uh, canada nick but and i haven't seen it down here but um for wing prices like uh you know like wings like you know buffalo wild wings or any of that um is a is a ask your server for the current market pricing they don't actually list a price and so i was like that's really weird for chicken like i used to thought like that was like normal for me like maybe if you eat seafood a lot and stuff like that but um and then you scroll down on the thread and there's like that's some venezuela shit right there that's crazy yeah, I, I think that that is really weird, like chicken, you know, it's like, so, so uh, I, I thought that was like a funny thing I just wanted to mention. It's like um, the fact that uh, we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing stuff that we've never seen before. And uh, so, uh, yeah, take some time to think about like your basket, um, you know, your relevant basket. And like, yeah, like Nick said, like, forget about CPI, like, think about what's relevant to you. Like, are the things that you buy increasing in price and, you know, are you making that much more money? And, you know, it's, it's like, a, it's, it's all a, a self-reflection. And, and I think that, that everybody can come to a similar truth that uh, inflation is not okay. And it's something that is, is very uh, abstract and, and that can be, that, you know, can be addressed um, because it, you know, like, like, uh, um, Nick was saying, it's, um, you know, uh, it seems so normal. Uh, yeah, it's been normalized. It's well, been completely well, it, accepted. Inflation is normalized. It's, it's yeah. like, it's normal. It's okay. And, and when I think about a deflationary future, I'm like, I, I, my mind doesn't even know where to go. I have so many fun and exciting questions, um, that, that, you know, will be really fun to explore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, The base premise is like inflation is not normal. It doesn't happen 
normally. Um, we live in a technology based society. Technology is fundamentally deflationary. Things get cheaper over time, cheaper and better over time. And so why the heck, even with that intense pressure, why are things getting more expensive? And it's because things getting more expensive is a byproduct of money being created without any value um, having to be given to create that. So when money's created out of nowhere, there's more money in the system. Each dollar in existence becomes less valuable. Products become more expensive because not because they're getting harder to make or more valuable because the money is getting less valuable. And that is 100% a byproduct of money being created on purpose. Like it's not a natural thing. Prices don't naturally go up over time. They're supposed to go down over time. And yet they're still going up because certain, a small percentage of people are manipulating the money supply and it's making us all poorer and it's stealing all of our time. I think that like fundamental snippet is really what people need to, to kind of stomach and sort of dive into to understand inflation and why it's so messed up and why it actually is relevant for them. Um, Cause you usually learn about things through curiosity or through pain. Everyone is learning about inflation through pain right now because everyone is facing increasing prices without getting, without an increase in their own earning uh, power. And that's this whole thing, notion of the squeeze, working more and more for less and less, essentially being on a treadmill with someone cranking up the speed and just having to do run faster to stay in the same spot. And I think that it's really messed up that we've essentially been indoctrinated into accepting this as normal because we're not taught about it. They use sneaky metrics like CPI and they benefit rich people who have all the power. And therefore the, those people keep them in power because they continue to benefit from it. And I think the coolest thing about, you know, this, if you accept the assumption that Bitcoin um, is fundamentally not something that we can just make more of out of nowhere, there is a costliness to create Bitcoin or earn Bitcoin. Therefore, it is a sound store of value because there's a finite amount. None, will, none more will ever be produced. And there is a cost associated to produce it. The coolest thing about Bitcoin is that like, if we look at houses, okay, wealthy people with assets gain disproportionately from money being created to own a house you have to have you have to either sign a mortgage and mortgage is literally mal is death in french gage means like agreement it's a death agreement so you're gonna pay these people until you die that's literally what a mortgage means it's super fucked up so you can sign up for a huge mortgage and pay the bank gobs of money even though when you give the bank your money they pay you nothing but they lend that to people and charge them huge amounts also really messed up. And so you have to take on all this risk of signing on for a huge amount of debt and paying people a huge amount of money in order to acquire this asset for the right to be able to be part of the, the group of people whose um, wealth goes up because assets will go up in price over time. The cool thing about Bitcoin is you can buy $10 worth of Bitcoin. You don't have to ask permission. You don't have to sign up for a death agreement to pay people interest until you die to own this thing. And the other cool thing is that over the past year, houses went up by 19% in Ottawa. Bitcoin went up 280%. So not only can you buy $10 worth of the best asset instead of signing on for an agreement for like half a million dollars, you can buy it anytime without asking anyone permission, without signing legal contracts. Um, and you have access to the hardest asset ever created by mankind, which is better than houses, which is better than anything else you can buy, literally. Um, and that is actually sustainably better, right? Like maybe you can make more on some dog coin 
because everyone's pumping it up because they're trying to put their money somewhere. But when you lose it all, because Dogcoin is based on nothing, um, that's not really sustainable. So I think sustainability is important. Um, but as a store of value, it's like anyone can access this, right? Like Strike, all these companies, PayPal, they're all creating on-ramps such that the person who is a plumber and has a blue collar job, doesn't earn that much extra, can't afford a really big house that's increasing in value, can buy the world's hardest asset and they're buying it before all the rich people buy it. And so this is this like great transition of, of wealth from the political, um, from the political, politically uh, powered population to the population of people who actually deliver true value in the world, who are the majority. It's redistributing that power, that, that monetary energy, which is like super cool. Um, let's talk about a deflationary world. And this is kind of our last point. Then we'll do kind of a summary and wrap things up. Deflation is when the value of your money rises in relation to prices of goods and services that you may wish to acquire. So deflation means, you know, like we see this with technology, right? 30 years ago, you bought a cell phone. It was $2,000. It was a massive brick. It had very little ability. You know, it had no charge, no time until it needed to be charged. It was a shitty phone for a very expensive price. Fast forward 20 years. The phone is like an eighth of the price and a hundred times as good. And so technology is fundamentally deflationary where over time things get better and things get cheaper. We live in a society underlined by technology. So our society should be fundamentally deflationary where things each year are getting cheaper. The only reason that doesn't happen is because our money is corrupt. And so, you know, to think about a deflationary future is to, is to think about a future that rewards savers where you save your money. And that money can buy you more in future. Therefore, you're incentivized for a low time preference, right? To a delayed of gratification. I can have one marshmallow today, or I can save this money and buy a thousand marshmallows tomorrow. Whereas if the money is essentially melting and you're being stolen from, one marshmallow today only buys you half a marshmallow tomorrow. So it's really like your incentive is to buy the marshmallow today because otherwise you're screwing yourself over. Um, and so, yeah, like what are your... What are your thoughts on what a deflationary future can look like? Because I really think like this is, this was the promise of technology, right? Like, oh, we're going to have so like 30 years ago, people were like, oh, we're going to have great technology. We're going to have robots doing things. Humans aren't even going to have to work. Things are going to be cheap. We're all going to be able to do art all day long. Robots will work. Things will be cheap. It's going to be great. And instead, it seems like the opposite has happened. We're like, we're working way harder. The robots, we're now slaves to the robots, right? Robots, including like Twitter, Instagram, email, like we're now giving way more time for way less return, which is completely opposite of what a deflationary future is supposed to look like. Um, And I think it's manipulated to be so. It's not actually just like that in reality. It's manipulated to be like that. What are your thoughts on deflation? Yeah, dude, I, I think that it's freaking crazy. The fact of the matter that... I, well, first of all, I think I, I really like that example of cell phones because I think that that's like the perfect example of like how something can decrease in price over time. And then it like that it just kind of brings me to my second thought that like any and, you know, I don't remember the name of this uh, term or definition, but it's like the value of any good trends towards is marginal cost of production. So like anything, you know if it, if it costs a lot to produce it, yeah, like, you know, it it should be sort of expensive, but, you know, 
with technology and over time, things do get better and they get cheaper. And so things naturally get cheaper. Like a cell phone is a perfect example of that. And I think that really highlighting the fact that in a in an inflationary world, we have a such a a focus on high time preference. And so that like brings me back to the squeeze. So I'm just going to tell my quick like uh, story on that too, and just how it relates to all this. But it's like the 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 point in my life when I realized that I needed to learn a lot more about things I didn't know was I I, I was going through you know like you and I have both done going through our health journey and uh, you know constantly bettering ourselves, constantly learn, learning new things and kind of protect. Uh, you know, just working on our craft and perfecting it. But uh, one of the things I remember being on a long drive with my wife, Jessica, and just saying like, you know, really, like, I just, I don't know what's bugging me. You know, it's like some, there's like this existential dread, you know, something is there and I like, don't know. And then I'm like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's my finances. Like maybe I need to learn more about money. And honestly, like that was one of the most important things that I've ever said to myself in my life, because like admitting to myself that I didn't know much about money really opened my eyes to the fact that I had an insanely high time preference. The fact that I had no idea on how to manage my time, how to manage my money and, and, and all of the different effects that were affecting me, making me feel like I was being choked, you know, like I was being squeezed for my time. And so I think like coming full circle and, and now realizing that, you know, in a deflationary world where money can be saved and you can use that money without it being manipulated or deflated. Um, it gives me, it gives me a uh, peace. It, it, it gives me a little bit of peace. And I almost feel like that squeeze, like those hands I don't know, around my neck or something are finally being like released. Like I can finally relax. It's like, I can see a future where, my money is, is not, it, it, the value of my money goes up and I'm able to buy more things and it frees up my time. And, and so it, it is directly related to that feeling of time squeeze. And um, yeah, I mean, it gives me a lot of hope to examine that future. I mean, like I said, I, I, I don't really know, like all really what to talk about, but I think, I think, in, in time, you know, a deflationary future is like what we're going to create. So that's one of the most exciting things for me is that like, we're talking about it right now, we're creating it and we're defining it. So the most important thing is that me and you and anybody else listening to this is going to go out and, and learn about inflation, learn about deflation, and then define what a deflationary and abundant future would mean for them, you know, and hopefully... Yeah you know, learning about Bitcoin can give us this, this vision for an abundant future, because really like, uh, you know, Bitcoin was that, was that moment for me, it gave me that moment of enlightenment where I could take a second, you know, take some time to reevaluate my life, like literally, you know, take that time back. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And, um, you know, I think, I think things should, uh, should decrease in price over time. I think that, with the with hyperinflation, uh, you know, some people may say that that's happening. Some people may say that it's not. 
um, you know, with, with modern day currencies. But I think with the adoption of Bitcoin, um, I'm going to be repricing, you know, my world in Satoshi's and, uh, I think a lot of other people are going to be do that. And I, I think that to me is like that connection point. It's like, how can we start to reprice the world um, in a new framework? And Bitcoin gives you a perfect framework to do that um, in, in, in an abundant way. Well, it's funny because we, you know, one experiment I want to do, you know, I'm wearing this crew neck. This is a kind of a project that we're going to do called Bitcoin livery. Um, Bitcoin library and library is just like a, an old school term for like uniform or like a, uh, the colors of someone who belongs to a certain community, basically. So we're going to be making some Bitcoin so it's very simple. But one experiment I want to do with this is I want to transparently price every batch we make in fiat based on our cost. So for example, we do a batch of 100 crew necks. We have a fixed cost for, for that batch when it comes to like buying the crew necks, printing it, paying for the people, all that kind of stuff. And we're going to multiply our fixed cost by 1.5, or I think it's 1.55. And we're going to price that batch based on our cost and our kind of margin so that we can continue doing this in Canadian dollars. And we're also going to price it in sats. And so over time with each batch we do, as costs go up, our fiat costs will increase. Therefore, what we have to charge will increase. But as time goes on and Bitcoin becomes more valuable, in relation to Canadian dollars, the price of these crew necks will go up over time in Canadian dollars and will go down in fiat. And it'll essentially serve as a really good tangible example of like, if you price things in fiat, it's getting more expensive. So you better be making more because that's what you need to do to just keep up. If you're looking at things in sats, things are getting radically cheaper every month when priced in sats. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I saw someone give a good example of this on Twitter. They said that I think it was like four years ago, they bought a home as rental income. So they paid $200,000 for a home. And at that point, that was like 25 Bitcoin whenever they bought it based on the value of Bitcoin. So it was 200,000 US and it was 25 Bitcoin. And now like today, the house is worth $400,000 and it's six Bitcoin. So it doubled in US dollars and it got divided by like almost five in Bitcoin dollars. In Bitcoin terms. And like, the, the, you know, it's funny. One of my favorite charts is the price of a Satoshi in US dollars. And it's constantly going down. And the price of Bitcoin in US dollars is constantly going up. So if you're, if, if you're buying Bitcoin with US dollars, they're getting more and more expensive. If you're buying uh, US dollars with sats, they're constantly getting cheaper. And I really think it gives you a good perspective of reality of like, okay, if we compare things in relative terms, it's still very new, right? Like the price things in sats for me is still very new. I look at it from like opportunity costs. It's like, okay, I could pay 50 bucks Canadian for this thing, or I can save that, put that, plug that into Bitcoin, put it in sats and have a hundred X as much purchasing power in a decade. Is that $50 thing really worth buying right now? Usually the answer is no. I own less and less shit. I buy less and less shit because I want to be able to make the decision to put my future self in a better situation. And I think the biggest trade-offs we make are between our current selves and our future selves. And that's a really important thing to kind of think of, but you need time to think about these things. And I think this is this really sinister thing of when everyone's time is stolen, we have less time to take care of ourselves. We have less time to understand the things that are stealing our time. So it's a vicious cycle, right? Right someone who's on the treadmill and is running as fast as they can just to keep up, 
doesn't have any extra time or energy to try and understand why is the treadmill getting so fast and why am I not going anywhere? I'm working harder to stay in the same spot, right? We don't have, so I think reclaiming control of your time through acquiring Bitcoin allows you to gain a deeper and deeper understanding of why your time was disappearing so quickly and all the tricks that were being played that you didn't have an understanding of how to detect. And once you know the trickery, you know how to detect it, you can't undetect it. And then you can tell others about it, right? Because when you reclaim your time, you have more time to take care of yourself. You have more time to help other people understand what you formerly didn't know so that they can protect themselves. And eventually, you know, people holding SATs have so much purchasing power that they determine the people who get in power and make the rules. Because right now there's a few dumb people that are making irresponsible and risky and stupid rules because they don't understand the trickle-down consequences and everyone else is paying the price for the dumb rules that are being made by a select few. And we don't know how to get out of this cycle. And I think it's through increasing financial literacy so that people can see the magic trick, stop being tricked by it, actively take a role to protect their time with this beautiful shield that's available to everyone called Bitcoin, which is more easily accessible now than it ever has been before in history and will continue to get easier to acquire. And you don't have to be rich to acquire it. You can acquire small amounts and it's literally the path to getting off the treadmill because it's going to kill us all eventually. Like eventually you stop being able to run fast enough, you fall and you get shot off the treadmill and, and think, and there's big problems, right? That's the equivalent of someone working as hard as they possibly can and foreclosing on their mortgage or not being able to afford their car payment. Like we don't want to get to there. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know how good of a job we did at explaining inflation, but I think just talking about CPI and how it's not relevant, talking about how money creation is inherently unfair and about the magic, like basically unpacking and dispelling the magic trick that's making us all be under the spell of inflation, of accepting inflation as normal, of accepting that the money we have should be worth less and less over time. I think just putting that on people's radar, maybe we'll plant a seed or maybe in future they learn more and more about it. Or maybe they buy a hundred bucks in Bitcoin and they see that wow, it's increasing, it's increasing in purchasing power um, relative to like, oh shit, beef just got 10% more expensive. So it means my dollars are worth less, right? Like just connecting the dots in that way, I think is important. Um, yeah, anything to kind of, I'll go through like a quick summary of the points that we covered, but anything to cover before we uh, close out today and, and round out the episode on inflation? Yeah, Nick, it was really fun to talk about inflation and just kind of exercise, you know, some of those definitions, CPI, um, Cantillian effect and, and things like that. But I think one of the things, the last thing I want to mention today, um, just financial literacy, like Nick had pointed, is, is really important. It's really important to my life. And um, I think it's important to everybody's life. And for me, learning about financial literacy took me, took, me to, took me the right direction. It took me down the right road to learn about inflation, to learn about these things, and then to learn about what I can do for myself. So I hope, yeah, today that we were able to enlighten um, you with some of these ideas and, and give you a better picture of inflation and, and give myself a better picture of, of some of these terminologies as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I get just as much learning how to clarify my thoughts and articulate them on here as the average person will probably get um, from learning about what we talked about, right? Like, I think it's a really good learning experience for me and you to clarify our thoughts and really sort of put in the energy to learn about these things so that we can hopefully articulate it in a simple way that delivers the gems without having 
to have people do all the research. Although please don't trust anything we say, verify, um, check for yourself, find these things out for yourself, build your own basket of goods and price them out and see how, how much is inflation affecting you based on your basket of goods from, you know, maybe a couple of years ago till today and really give yourself an honest um, picture of what it is so that you can see how big the problem is that you now have the opportunity to solve by acquiring Bitcoin sound money that can't be created out of nowhere um, versus this. And the crazy thing is like this fiat experiment that we're doing, where we're creating more and more money out of nowhere. Like I heard Samson Mao, who is the chief strategy officer at Blockstream talk about it within the context of Canada. And this interview that he did may have been like three or four months ago. I'm not sure exactly when, but it was near enough past future that it's still very relevant. He said that in Canada, this is like, I'll just lead people off with this stat because this is a very powerful one to contemplate. In Canada, more money was in dollar value was created in the past 12 months than had, be, than had been created in the previous 40 years combined. That's a really fucked up stat. And the, if you, especially if you understand the consequences of how that affects every person holding Canadian dollars and how much their purchasing power has been hacked away. You know, if you're someone who is no longer earning money because you're retired, if you're someone who has parents who are no longer earning money because they're retired, please have them kind of take an interest in inflation and how it affects them because it's, it's not a problem until it's a problem, right? And by the time it's a significant problem, it's probably too late. And so, you know, start soon, start early in terms of acquiring Bitcoin. It's your, it's your shield against inflation. It's your shield against um, time theft, quite frankly. So just to summarize, money creation out of nowhere is time theft. It cannot happen in Bitcoin, but it happens with fiat, happens in uh, central bank controlled currencies. Inflation is accelerating and is causing everyone except for the wealthy to fall further behind. And so it increases social inequality, which at some point creates a really nasty world, right? When the, the 1% has all the money and the 99% is pissed that they do, it's not even good being in the 1% because like, you know, now you have to defend, you have to defend what you have and have stolen from everyone else indirectly, knowingly or not knowingly. And like, it's not that good of a world where you have to have high security just to protect all the shit you own because no one else has anything. So like for the rich people out there, like you're going to be in some shit too. It's not good. It's not gonna be a great world. Um, Bitcoin is a shield to protect yourself from time theft because no one can create Bitcoin out of nowhere. CPI is a deceiving and misleading trick used by central banks to making us to, to try and make us think that we aren't falling further behind that inflation isn't happening when in reality it is create your own basket to get your own accurate depiction of how much inflation you are facing in your life. The squeeze is real and it's created on purpose. The squeeze is having to do more and more to earn less and less or do more and more work just to stay in the same spot as everything else gets more expensive. So you end up falling behind unless you're getting, uh, you know, if they printed 20% more money and you didn't get a 20% raise, you're falling further behind. And that's not fair. And the last point is the future. A Bitcoin future is deflationary. When you have sound money, your money ends up buying more over time. The longer you hold that money, the more purchasing power you get, which is the inverse of the current situation. Um, so thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to continue doing School of Coin every week uh, as able, and we're going to go up to 21 episodes. So we're still kind of like morphing and um, deciding which episodes are 
should be where, in which order, and what topics we should cover. So if you have any input on that, you can send us an email, bitcoinstore at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for being here for another conversation. If you want to support the platform, bitcoinstore.com homepage, you can send some SaaS to the QR code there. Eddie, thanks as always for being uh, an amazing partner on this and uh, wishing everyone a great day and chat for now. See you guys.